Good morning. Uh, my name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. You can flip there or scroll there. Uh, if you uh, don't have your own copy of the Bible with you, uh, there should be a blue Bible on the ground near you, and you can uh, follow along there if you like, or you can just listen. Uh, last week, we, we began a new series called Called Out, Walking Together as the Church. Uh, and the, the, the reason for that title is that the word church in Greek is the word ekklesia, and it, it means called out. Um, the people that God has called out to uh, follow him in this world. And so uh, we are working our way through this series. It's really kind of the um, culmination of a process we've been in for a few months uh, as a church of just kind of pausing to evaluate what does the Bible say about who we are and how do we follow God as we walk into what he's called us to be as a church. And so um, we are looking at uh, eight marks of the church, eight characteristics of the church in the New Testament. Um, and this morning we're looking at the, uh, the second of these characteristics about uh, the church, that the church is the scripture-keeping church. The church is defined um, by the scriptures. We don't make this up ourselves, but we follow God as he has made himself known to us in his word. So um, I'm going to read for us this. Oh, I was going to say that much of the series, uh, typically what we do in our sermons here at Resurrection OC is... I, uh, you know, I attempt to explain one particular passage at a time. Uh, but in this series, what we're doing is more of an overview of what the New Testament says about each of these marks of the church. And so I'm not going to be uh, as much expounding one passage of Scripture this morning as referring to several. But I'm going to read for us this morning a well-known passage about what the Bible says about itself um, in 2 Timothy 3. So let me invite you to stand with me as we give our attention to God's word, if you're able and willing. And I'm going to read 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 10. You know, the last couple verses of this passage are fairly well known if you have um, been in the church for any period of time. And yet, I love this whole section because it really conveys the Apostle Paul's kind of pastoral and fatherly heart. He's writing to Timothy, who has been uh, his, his um, kind of young protege. Paul is now at the end of his life, and he's writing these uh, instructions, these kind of final parting words to his son in the faith. And this is what he says in 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 10. He writes to Timothy, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a, life, a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, 
for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Oh God, we pause in the midst of our uh, busy lives and we turn our attention to your word, God, and we pray that you would speak to us by the power of your spirit. Oh, Father, would you make Jesus more real to us, we pray in his name. Amen. Can you maybe be seated, please? Well, there are many things in life that just <clears throat> seem to go together better than they do apart. Peanut butter is great, but peanut butter and jelly together, they just go together better, don't they? Uh, marshmallows. You know, I know my children would love to eat kind of raw whipped sugar, puffed sugar, but you know, after the age of I don't know, 16 or so, a marshmallow by itself isn't really that appealing, is it? But marshmallow and fire, that's the perfect combination, isn't it? Uh, a marshmallow and a campfire becomes some more marshmallow and hot chocolate. Uh, they're just better together. Salt and just about anything. You don't want to eat salt by itself. But salt with just about anything makes that thing a better version of itself. Macaroni and cheese, just plain macaroni is not interesting, but macaroni and cheese, not the stuff out of the box, but the good, real <laughs> cheese, it's just better together. This morning we're talking about uh, the role of Scripture in the life of, of individual Christians and especially in the life of the church. And when we, when we talk about the role of Scripture, there are two words or concepts or ideas that we need to keep together. And so if you're taking notes, I want you to write down two words. Or if you're not taking notes, I want you to remember these two words. Uh, these two words, when it comes to Scripture, we have to hold them together. And the words are these, authority and affection. The scriptures are the authority of God. Uh, they are God's standard for uh, us as individuals and for God's church. And the scriptures are, uh, they communicate to us the affection of God. And uh, I think it is crucial, it is crucial that we hold these two things together. Because the Bible is both God's authority over us. And it also communicates his affection for us. For some of us, we love talking about the Bible as the truth. It is the standard. It is God's word. It is, it is the thing that we submit to. And there, there are some of us who that's what we love to talk about. And so we, we want to be a part of a church that has a high view of the Bible and takes the Bible seriously and says, this is what God says. That settles it. Uh, we love the idea, some of us, that the Bible is the authority of God. And others of us uh, love the idea that the Bible is a love letter uh, to God's people. It communicates God's care for us, his fatherly affection towards us. Um, it shows the lengths that God goes to to woo the wayward and to advocate for the marginalized and to forgive and redeem the guilty. The Bible tells us of God's great affection for us, and so we need to hear it, and we need to be reminded over and over again of how much God loves us. And to both of these things this morning, I want to say yes and amen. The Bible is the authority of God, and it is the affection of God. 
it just occurred to me that I'm probably going to, it's not like this side is the authority side and this is the affection side. I'm probably going to continue to mix those up. But I think each of us tends to gravitate towards one or the other based on our, I don't know, our temperament or our personality and, and probably our experience also. Some of us are, you know, authority people. Uh, we really love the, God, the Bible as the truth of God. Others of us are really affection people. But what I need you to see this morning whole point of this sermon really is that we have to hold these two things together. It's pretty easy to see this. I think um, you can think about this, you know, as an analogy in relation to parenting and whether you are a parent, you may not be a parent, but you certainly have parents. And uh, I don't know about you, but I know growing up that if um, I wanted to ask somebody uh, for a snack or if I wanted to ask uh, one of my parents hey, can I go play with my friends? Uh, there was one parent that I was gonna ask, right? Um, we, you know, there's a, kind of this good cop, bad cop dynamic sometimes in our parenting, and, um, and we all know who that is. Uh, but while we can recognize the kind of tendencies of, of us as individuals to lean in one direction, you know, the, the good cop who is affectionate or the, you know, supposedly the bad cop who is authoritative, um, if we take either of these in two, come to an extreme, we actually lose um, both. I mean, here's what I mean. Affection without authority. Um, what does affection without authority look like in parenting? Well, it means, uh, you know, it's, it's this idea that I'm just, I just want to love my kids. Uh, I just want to be their friend. You know, I'm not here to, you know, contradict them. Um, and affection without authority taken too far, it looks like license. It looks like, um, your children walking all over you because in your insecurity, you need them to affirm you and to love you. And so you're afraid to be an authority in their lives. Yet in the long run, affection without authority isn't love at all. It is because I love my children that I discipline them, right? And yet the opposite, or I guess the corollary is also true. Authority without affection becomes authoritarian. Authority without affection becomes harsh. And ironically, if we exhibit authority towards our children without affection, in the long run, they lose respect for authority because what they see authority as uh, is sort of a, a power play. It's, it's about me. It's about uh, me making myself comfortable at your expense. And so it becomes harder for our children to respect authority. No authority means no affection, and affection does not require a lack of authority. In fact, we need one to have the other. And the point is simply this, that the Bible is both God's authority over us and affection towards us. Some of us like authority, but we don't like the idea that God is affectionate for us. Uh, it's like, oh, you know, that's just kind of soft and uh, feels gross, like... I don't need that, but God, you know, I take the Bible seriously. Others of us love the idea that God is our Father, that He loves us, uh, that the Bible is His love letter to us, but don't try to tell me that God has standards for my life, that God might contradict me, that God might say something to me that is hard to hear. But the truth is, it's both. The, uh, the Bible is both God's authority over us and His affection towards us. You know, there are, there are a few myths, I think, around these ideas in our church, and not just in our church, but in the church in the West, and 
and, uh, and certainly in our culture. Uh, there's the myth um, in Christian circles today that says I can be a, you know, a healthy Christian, I can be growing spiritually, I can be, uh, we can be a healthy church, and sort of have a fuzzy view of what the Bible's role in our lives ought to be. Uh, but friends, this is tragically true. When we give up on the authority of God's word, it is only a matter of time before we miss out on his affection as well. If we give up on the authority of God's word, we don't get his affection. Uh, there's another myth, second myth, that operates more in our culture that would have us believe that God wants to uh, steal our fun. And so if we take the authority of the Bible seriously, we'll have no real joy in life. And of course, in our culture, we think of this probably primarily in regard to the Bible's uh, teaching on sex and sexual ethics, that God is just raining on your parade. Um, but we love the idea that the Bible says to turn the other cheek. Uh, we love that idea. You know, you could get on a plane this afternoon and fly to the Middle East and get off the plane and discover that you are now in a culture that loves the Bible's sexual ethic and hates the idea that the Bible says to turn the other cheek. But it's not true. Neither of these are true. It is because I love my children that I give them boundaries. It's because God loves his people. It's because he loves us and he created us and he knows how we work best that he tells us how to live our lives. Um, God loves you. He's affectionate for you and he knows how you best operate and so he exercises his authority over you. Another myth, and I think that maybe this one is a little bit harder to spot in the church, uh, that sort of turns the Bible into this like authoritarian weapon. Um, it looks something like this. If, um, if I don't feel guilty, then God must not really be at work in my life. And so when I go to church, oh, it hurts, but it's good for me. Or um, somebody said recently, um, that, that, that there, are, there are churches that take the Bible seriously, have a high view of the Bible, and often what you experience is, uh, is teaching where the Bible is kind of dissected in minute detail, and you're kind of told, this is what it means, now go do it. And it sounds kind, but in the long run, you just feel the weight of the Bible coming down on you, and the gospel does not feel sweet to you at all. The Bible is both God's authority and his affection. He loves you. He loves you, and because he loves you, he tells you what is good for you. He exercises authority over you. And so what I want to show you this morning is, is what the Bible itself says about God's authority in his word and his affection to us in his word. So firstly, um, uh, God's authority. What does the Bible say about the authority of the Bible in the Christian life and over the church? And uh, I'm going to give you some kind of theological words, three theological words, but um, I don't typically do this, but I heard somebody recently say this, and this is really true. If you can learn how to order at Starbucks, you can learn a few theological words. And so it's a good idea, especially when we're talking about something as important as the Bible, for us as a church to d develop a vocabulary that is not common simply to us, but really to the church for the last 2,000 years. And so here's really the, the three words I'm going to give you, or the, uh, the formula I'm going to give you. Inspiration plus inerrancy equals infallibility. Inspiration plus inerrancy equals infallibility. Now, what does that mean? Well, firstly, uh, inspiration. 
What do you typically think of when you hear the word inspiration? Uh, typically, you think of like a really flowery sounding quote, like something Oprah said. Uh, and and the, the idea we typically have inspiration is the idea that, oh, that really makes me feel good about myself, or it kind of calls something nice out of me and calls me to a better version of myself. That is not what the Bible means when it talks about inspiration. The, the, the inspiration of Scripture comes from this passage in 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 that I read a few minutes ago. And... Um, the verse says this, it says, all scripture is breathed out by God. When we're talking about the inspiration of scripture, we're not talking about how it makes us feel. What we're talking about is the source of scripture. Where does it come from? Uh, and what the Bible says is that scripture is scripture because it is exhaled, it is breathed out by God. God is its source, its author, uh, and therefore uh, what God says has authority, it has a weight. It, uh, it leads us, it guides us. Uh, scripture is, uh, it's scripture because it is spoken by God himself. Now, the book of the Bible, that what we typically think of as the Bible, uh, is not actually one book. The Bible is 66 books. Uh, it's a collection of 66 books. 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. Uh, it's written by about 40 authors, we think. It's written over a period of about 1,500 years. It's written in three languages, uh, Hebrew and some Aramaic in the Old Testament. Uh, the New Testament is written in Greek. Uh, it's written on um, more than one continent. And yet, when we say that the Bible is the Word of God, what we're saying is that through these 40 or so unique individuals who actually wrote down Scripture, God so worked through them as to use their unique gifts and experiences and even their voice uh, so that what they wrote is actually the Word of God. And um, it, it, it continues to be the writing of Paul or Moses or Jeremiah, and yet it is authoritative because it is uh, the Word of God. It's not... Um, uh, what the Bible consistently claims to be, it regularly, the Bible regularly refers to the word of the Lord, the word of God. It doesn't refer as much to uh, the word of David or the word of Paul or the word of Jeremiah. And so that's what, this is why the Bible is authoritative. It's why it's our standard. It's because it is the word of God itself. Um, every one of us has had the experience at some point or another of a little young child asking you, you know, you're trying to give instructions to a child and they say, why? And you give an answer and they say, why? And you give an answer and they say, why? And eventually you get to the point where you pull out the trump card that you swore you were never going to pull out and say, because I'm your parent, because I'm in charge. And what you're doing when you play that card is you're not saying, because I am bigger than you. I mean, you might actually be saying that, but like, if you're a good person, <laughs> you're, you're, right? you're, you're, what you're saying to a child is, there are good reasons for what I'm asking you to do now, but I know that you don't currently have the maturity to understand them, and so I'm asking you to trust me and to obey me. And that is what God is doing when he says that the Bible is his word and it is authoritative. 
if you take the Bible seriously, friends, at some point, you are going to run into a place where what the Bible says does not jive with what you want it to say. Uh, where what the Bible says does not comport with what the culture would have you believe or what your upbringing or family of origin would have you believe. Um, Love your enemies sounds great until somebody actually hurts you. Uh, Forgive 70 times seven times when your brother offends you. It sounds great until somebody actually offends you and God calls you to forgive. But the Bible isn't the word of a sage or good advice, good advice from somebody who's just a little bit further down life's road. Um, it is actually the word of God himself. And when we bump into places that we don't like or we don't understand, what we're doing is we're taking the posture of that child that says, God, I don't, I don't understand and I cannot possibly understand because I don't have enough wisdom or maturity or experience to understand. And so, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. The Bible is inerrant. It is uh, breathed out by God. Secondly, inerrancy, or sorry, it is uh, inspired. The second word is inerrancy. Uh, inerrancy simply means without error, without error, inerrant. Um, John 17, 17, Jesus is praying for us. And he says this, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is true. <laughs> Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but, but the, the claim of the Bible is that it is true. Um, it wasn't a really old book where some old guys were taking, just making their best attempt and they got a lot of good things right, um, but they made some huge errors along the way. Uh, what I want to tell you is that the rumors that the Bible is full of contradictions has been grossly exaggerated. Uh, the idea that anybody, you know, if you kind of walk out on the street, is going to say to you something like, well, everybody knows that science has disproved the Bible a long time ago. It, it seems like common sense until you ask the follow-up question. I want to be humble about how I say this, because if you're a person here who would, who would offer one of those objections, I would love to hear how you want to kind of parse that out. But when I have asked a follow-up question, could you point me to one place that the Bible contradicts itself? Could you point me to one place that science has disproved uh, the truth of Scripture? In my experience, I have never, uh, I have never met a, a convincing response. Um, like I said, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, on this point. If you have questions about that, I would love to talk with you about that. But um, the Bible claims to be true. It claims to be without error. And um, there is some arrogance to claim that contrary to the Bible's assertion and the faith of billions of people, uh, that the Bible is riddled with errors. And then the third kind of part of this formula is this uh, Inspiration plus inerrancy equals infallibility. Uh, infallible means um, it will not fail you. And so we might actually bundle together the ideas of the infallibility that, that the Bible won't fail you and its sufficiency. Uh, what it means is this, that the Bible is trustworthy and it is enough for you. Um, 
It is enough for you. Basically, what this means is this, that the Bible is the way that you can know God. Uh, we live in a time where people say something like, you can never really know for certain who God is or what he's like. And yet several, many of us will, will describe experiences that we've had where we felt close to God, we felt this kind of divine spark, whatever words we might want to use. And um, we would talk about experiences that we've had where we've come to know something about God. And yet what the Bible claims is that it is the foundation for any true knowledge of God. Uh, any, any true knowledge of God has to be founded on the Bible itself. Um, there's this fascinating passage in, in 2 Peter chapter 1 where Peter, um, Peter is describing um, to the churches that he's writing to, and he's telling them that I have had, Peter, Peter's saying, I have had the experience that trumps any experience of the presence of God. And you have something better than that. And so what, what he says is, I'm going to read um, some of this first Peter, uh, sec, sorry, Second Peter chapter 1. He says this. He says, uh, For when he, Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, because we were with him on the holy mountain. Okay, what is he saying there? What Peter is saying is, I went up on a hill with James and John and Jesus, and we saw Jesus light up like a Christmas tree. And we heard a voice from heaven saying, this is my son, I love him, you should listen to him. He says, we saw that, we saw the, the glory of God revealed. And then he goes on to say, and you have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you should pay attention as a lamp shines in dark places until the day dawns uh, and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He's saying, whatever experience you've had of God, I have the trump card for that. Peter lived for three years with Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He saw Jesus feed 5,000 people. He saw Jesus walk, out on, walk on water and actually walked out on water towards him. Uh, he, 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 you know, he experienced everything that Jesus did in his life and his death and his resurrection. And Peter's saying, I, you have something better. You have something more sure. You have something more stable. It's the Bible. Now, how can you possibly say that? Well, one reason I think you can say that, I had a professor when I was in grad school who, who used to like to say that anecdote is, or, or argument from anecdote is the worst form of argument. You know, you can talk about all these logical fallacies, like a claim to authority, you should believe me because I have a PhD. Uh, but he said the lowest form of argument is an argument where I tell you you should believe this because I experienced it. And the reason it's the worst form of argument is because it's impossible to verify or falsify. Um, Peter is saying you have something that is more fully confirmed. It is trustworthy. It's the Bible. It's the Word of God. What the Bible is saying is no experience can be our foundation for a life with God unless it is an experience of God through His Word itself. Scripture comes from God. Uh, it is true, and it is reliable, and it is all that we need uh, to know who God is, and so it is God's authority over us. It's our standard. It's, it's my standard. It's the standard for our church. The standard for our church is not 
my teaching or my opinion. The t- standard for a church is what does the Bible say? Um, now, I don't know exactly how that lands with you. The Bible is our authority. I, my, my hunch is that some of us are going, yes, of course, like we want to be a church that believes the Bible. This is good news. There are probably some others of us going like, okay, like, yeah, you kind of made the case, but I don't love what you just said there. And what I want to emphasize again is we have to hold together the authority and the affection of Scripture. Because if there's a danger in a church like ours that takes the Bible seriously, it's that the Bible would become a weapon that we use to whack people with. Um, It's that uh, we use the Bible like a club to attack other people. And tragically, I can say this after almost 15 years in pastoral ministry, uh, not exclusively, but it is often those people who know the right answers about the Bible that have the hardest time implementing its message in practice in their lives. Uh, It is the times when I am most certain that I am right, that I have come down the hardest on others. A strong view of the authority of the Bible, absent the constant drip of God's affection on our hearts, will make us callous and strident. A strong view of the Authority of God's word, absent the constant drip of his affection on our hearts, will make us callous and strident. Martin Luther said this, Martin Luther, the uh, Protestant reformer, he said, the Bible is alive, it speaks to me. It has feet, it runs after me. It has hands, it lays hold of me. And I think that captures so beautifully both the authority and the affection of God's word. So secondly, look with me at what the Bible says about the way it communicates God's affection to us. It's often said that the Bible is God's love letter to us. And while that is true, what we have to understand is that if we remove the authority of God from the Bible, then we, get, then we lose the affection too. Like there's no reason to trust that there is a God who loves you if you do not hold to the authority of the Bible. There is no place in nature, there's no place on the news that communicates that God loves you. It is only only through the Bible, the authoritative word of God, that we can confidently say that God loves us, that he is for us in Christ. So what I want you to hear is this. The Bible is not so much a record of what God requires of us as it is a record of what God has done for us. The Bible is, this is, this is good news, friends. The Bible is not so much a record of what God requires of us as it is a record of his action for us on our behalf. The Bible is the story of God creating uh, a universe that is good and creating human beings to live in it. And yet when we rebelled against God, the, the amazing thing about the Bible is that it doesn't only have two or three chapters. But that when human, the human race rebelled against God, uh, the story of Scripture continues, and God pursued us, and God literally moves heaven and earth to come and woo wayward sinners and draw us to himself. And ultimately, God comes in Jesus and lives for us and dies for us and is raised again 
for us. He comes to earth to win us back at his own expense. And so the Bible in its entirety is a record of God's great affection for us. He loves us. Uh, in John 6, there's this place where Jesus is teaching. And, and uh, in John 6, there's a, it's a really long chapter. And it, it records all these incredible things Jesus did. And, and as he fed you know, thousands of people, um, crowds are drawn to him. And people just start flocking to Jesus. And yet, as he's gaining in popularity and his ministry is growing larger and larger, uh, Jesus says to the crowd, essentially, uh, just because you've come to see amazing things doesn't mean that you really are my follower. And, uh, and some of the crowds are offended and they turn and walk away. And then Jesus looks at his disciples, the twelve, his inner circle, and he says to them, are you also going to leave? And in John 6, verse 68, Peter says, Jesus, where else are we going to go? And then he says, but you have the words of eternal life. And I think that's such a uh, poignant response because anybody who has followed Jesus for any length of time has at some point had to pause and say, I did not know that you were going to lead me into this level of sacrifice. And I didn't know that the cost of following you would be so high. And anybody who has found themselves in that point, at that point, has to turn and hear the voice of Jesus saying, are you going to leave me as well? And Peter's response is so great, there is nowhere else we can go, God. Because you have the words of life. Yes, this is not what I expected, and sometimes it feels like the cost is more than I can bear. But then with the next breath, and yet it's so much better than I could have expected. You have the words of life. You don't just have good advice. There is no true lasting life outside of Jesus, and there is no lasting way to access Jesus outside of his word. He speaks to us by the power of his Holy Spirit through his word. God is giving life to us. He brings life, he brings healing, he brings joy, he brings peace. He shapes us into his image as we give our attention to his word. God loves you and the only way that you can know that God loves you is through his word. Finally, about the affection of God, what you need to see about the, uh, the affection of, the God, of God in the Bible is that it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Um, earlier, actually, chapter 5 of John, just talking about John 6, but if you go back one chapter from there, Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were <coughs> men who took the Bible very seriously but didn't understand what it was all about. And Jesus says in John 5, 39, it says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and yet it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus is saying, uh, the Bible is all about me. I want to give you life, and when we straight arm him, uh, we miss out on the affection of God when we straight arm him because we don't like the authority of God's word, we miss the affection of God's word. It is the Bible that tells us all about the life of Jesus. 
It is the Bible that tells us about Jesus' life lived perfectly, not just as an example, not just to raise the bar higher, but he lived a life fully to obey God's law for us. It is the Bible that tells us that Jesus wasn't just the victim of circumstances, but his death on the cross is actually God's payment for our sin. And so as Jesus hangs on the cross, he's paid for your sin. He's paying the debt that you owe. You can only learn that through the scriptures. It's the Bible that tells us of his resurrection, of his ascension, and that he will come again. It's the Bible that tells us that God welcomes all who come to him through Christ. It's the Bible that communicates God's great affection for us. The Bible is the affection of God, and it is the authority of God. So the question then remains, what does that mean for us? What does that mean as, as you know, individual Christians, those of us who would claim to be Christians? What does that mean for Resurrection OC? What should we do? Friends, I think that the greatest threat to us is that we could believe all of the right things about the Bible and yet ignore it in practice. I think I've mentioned this before, but Stephen Colbert, um, when he was doing his satirical show uh, on Comedy Central several years ago, had, a, you know, I don't know, 10 years ago or so, uh, remember when there was this controversy about um, displaying the Ten Commandments in courthouses in, in the United States, and it, there was this big controversy about that, and Stephen Colbert was interviewing a congressman uh, on his show, and this congressman was adamantly in favor that the, the Ten Commandments have to be on display in courthouses in the, in the United States because they are the foundation of government and just laws and all of these things. And so Stephen Colbert says to him, uh, this man who's defending the Bible, and Stephen Colbert is a, is a believer, um, but Stephen Colbert says, so you're saying the Ten Commandments, they're really important. I said, oh yeah, definitely. And, and it's foundation for, for justice in our, in our world. Oh yeah, very, very important. And uh, he says to this congressman, he said, what are the Ten Commandments? And the congressman began to sputter and his face turned very shades of purple and blue and red. And he did not know what the Ten Commandments were. And, you know, it's a fairly poignant moment, isn't it? It's a fairly poignant statement about uh, the church in our culture. Perhaps the greatest disservice that the church in America could do is increasingly uh, is, is encapsulated in that kind of exchange where we would be defenders of the Bible who don't actually know what it says or use it with any experience uh, in our day-to-day lives. So Resurrection OC, we want to be a church that loves the Bible. Uh, The Bible has always been and will continue to be um, at the heart of our life as a church. We're going to preach the Bible. I don't want to be arrogant in the way that we talk about the Bible. We want to talk about the Bible winsomely. We want to talk about the Bible in a way that is gracious, um, that is gentle towards those who are not yet convinced that the Bible is the Word of God. We want to talk about the Bible in a way that helps those who have less experience with the Bible read it for themselves and come to understand it as God's Word. We love the Bible. We're going to encourage you to read the Bible. 
we've said one of the four big objectives in our church in the next 12 to 24 months is creating a process for building disciples. And what that, part of that, a huge part of that is training you to read the Bible. Um, our staff and spouses and some of the leaders in our church have been going through or kind of piloting a discipleship course that's all about establishing the, uh, the habit, the daily habit of spending time with God in his word and in scripture uh, and in prayer. We want to encourage you to read the Bible. We're, we're, we're starting with our leaders because we cannot lead you towards something that we do not possess or experience for ourselves. And in January, we're going to roll this out to our church as large, at large because we want to help you implement the practice of reading the Bible, not out of guilt, not because we're going to earn anything by doing it, but we cannot be shaped by God if we never read his word or if uh, on a Sunday morning is the only time that we hear the Bible. Um, sometimes we read the Bible to get answers, but the Bible doesn't tell you which job you should take or who you should marry or if you should move across the country or, or anything like that. And so um, sometimes we read the Bible to get answers about the will of God, but I think more often than that, we read the Bible because it, ga- it builds wisdom in us. And just like you probably can't remember what you ate for dinner 364 days ago, unless it was your birthday, uh, you may not remember what you read in the Bible any one particular time, and yet it is a constant, the constant nourishment of eating dinner that keeps you healthy, and it is the constant practice of reading the Bible that builds wisdom in you. Over time, it takes time. We're going to encourage you to make reading the Bible as life-giving for you as your morning cup of coffee. Because God loves you. He loves you. We're going to encourage you to obey the Bible. In John 14, verse 15, Jesus says this. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I feel like as a parent, I say something very similar on a daily basis. I'm not telling you you have to obey me to earn my love, but if you love me, you can say thank you by listening to me. (laughs) We're going to encourage you to obey the Bible, not to earn God's love, but out of gratitude for him. We're going to emphasize that Jesus is the hero of the Bible. After the resurrection in Luke chapter 24, Jesus appears and walks with two disciples to a town called Emmaus, and it says that as they walked along, uh, along, he explained Jesus explained to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself, that all of the Bible is actually about Jesus. And later, reflecting on it, they said, didn't our hearts burn as he explained the Bible to us? We're going to continue to emphasize that Jesus is the hero of the Bible, that it's all about him. We're going to make a big deal about the Bible. And here's the reason why, because theologically, we agree with this. I mean, if you've been a part of our church for, you know, more than a few months, theologically, I'm guessing, you know, to a greater or lesser extent, you agree with everything I've said today. We agree with this theologically, and yet statistically, we are nowhere near implementing this. Um, Statistics indicate that 
a large number of pastors never read the Bible outside of preparing to teach on the Bible. Tragically, there are times where I would say that that has been true of me, thankfully, not recently. Um, Statistically, if you don't open a Bible on a Sunday morning in church, you are unlikely to open a Bible the rest of the week. Statistically, very few Christians are actually reading their Bible more than a couple of times a week. So we believe this, and yet we don't do it. And I get it. But God loves you. (laughs) And he wants to communicate his grace to you, and he does that through his words. So we're going to make a big deal about the Bible. I counted this week in my office If you've seen my office, you know it's a very small closet. In my office, I have at least 14 copies of the Bible. And the problem, and that's so many I could find, and there's more around my house. And the problem is that the Bible, because it is no longer scarce in our lives, it doesn't feel precious to us. But you know what is fairly scarce in our world is a church that really submits to the authority of the Bible and enjoys the affection of God as it's communicated to us through the Bible. And so we're going to make a big deal about the Bible because it's easy for us to ignore. And it's easy for us to ignore while we're saying that we take it very seriously. Bart Ehrman is a uh, professor at University of North Carolina, and he was... Uh, well, he, he kind of makes it his mission to, he, he teaches uh, religious studies at a state school, kind of makes it his mission to disabuse naive freshmen of their Christian faith. And so he um, uh, often begins his, his introduction to religion class at University of North Carolina by asking students if they would raise their hand if they believe that the Bible is the word of God. And because it's North Carolina, he says, you know, two thirds of, uh, of the class raises their hand. And then he says, how many of you have read the entire Harry Potter series? And like 90% of the class raises their hand. And then he says, how many of you have read, how many of you have read the entire Bible? And, you know, like five people raise their hand. And he says, <laughs> he says, okay, this is a quote. Okay, look, I'm not saying that I think God wrote the Bible. You're telling me that you think God wrote the Bible. I can see why you might want to read a book by J.K. Rowling, but if God wrote a book, wouldn't you want to see what he has to say? And then he goes on to say, for me, it's just one of the mysteries of the universe that so many people can revere the Bible and think that it is God's inspired revelation to his people and yet know so little about it. And I think we'd have to say, you know, that's fair enough, right? We've lost the wonder because the Bible is everywhere. We don't view it as precious anymore. So let me finish by telling you about a man who's on death row in Louisiana. I uh, watched a documentary about his life recently, and uh, this man was asked in this documentary, how do you spend your time in prison where you have almost nothing to do? He said this, I spend a lot of time reading our book. He said, I'm glad it's so big because I'll never get to the bottom of it. You know, there are two billion of us Christians in the world. And everything today that any of us does that's any good has something to do with our book. And I have a copy of it right here in my cell. Friends, can you believe it? We have the very word of God. 
Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you are a God who speaks. That you are not a God made of stone or wood or metal, ancient or modern, that demands that we give more and more and more to find satisfaction in you. But God, you are a God who speaks to us. And you come to us because we have broken your law. But you come to us not simply to confront us with your authority, but to redeem us with your affection. And so we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. I pray that you would move in our hearts to make us individually people who cling to your word. Would you make us a church that loves your word? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.